And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles there, it's page 988. 1 Thessalonians 5. Thessalonians 5. And before we read God's word, let's pray together. Pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would now send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts, that we might rightly understand and apply your word, give us faith to embrace it. And we do pray that you would help us to glorify Jesus and to become more like him. In his name we pray. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, this is God's word. Do not quench the spirit. May God give us ears to hear his word. I think I've told you this story before, but in 1996, I went on a short-term mission trip to Russia, and there I almost got thrown in prison. Uh, we were in the Moscow airport waiting to catch our next plane. We had flown from Syracuse, New York, to New York City, and then from New York City, we flew across the Atlantic Ocean, landed in Moscow. It had been 24 hours of just exhaustion. I mean, we were so tired, we were falling asleep, leaning on our baggage. If I remember correctly, we had a several-hour layover in Moscow, and none of us spoke Russian. And as you can imagine, the Moscow airport is this very busy, uh, smelly, metropolitan airport, just packed with tons and tons of people from different countries, very disorienting, very confusing. And we were eager to get on our plane to our final destination, which was actually Novosibirsk, Russia. Well, we were sitting around the airport, and I had to use the restroom. Uh, I wasn't too far from, the restroom wasn't too far from where we were all sitting, so I just got up and marched over to the restroom and went on in, and I didn't think too much about the table I walked past, and at this table was this old Russian woman who had, you know, your stereotypical head covering and all that on, walked right in, used the bathroom, headed out, walked right past her, and as I walked past her, she just started cackling something at me in Russian, very unhappy. I had no idea what she was saying, uh, and I assumed that she was just asking for a handout or something like that. So I just kind of ignored her, kept right on walking, heading back toward my team. Before I was able to get to our team, I was confronted by two Russian police officers. And I could tell these Russian police officers were not happy. Uh, they couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Russian. I'm trying to explain. I don't speak Russian. They're saying something. Uh, rather, you know, they're, they're, again, they're unhappy, and I'm getting really quite scared. I think I was like 18 at the time, um, and, you know, all of this is brand new. Never been to Russia before. Don't want to go to a Russian prison. I've seen that sort of thing on TV and in movies before. And who knows what would have happened if at just the right time this lady walked up, and thank God I can still see her in my mind. I think she was British. She happened to speak both English and Russian and she functioned just as sort of a volunteer translator. What she explained to me was that in the Moscow airport, you actually have to pay to use the bathroom. I had no idea. Uh, that's why that lady was there at the table. She was collecting the fee to use the bathroom. Uh, so she explained this to me. I went back and paid the little fee. It was like 50 cents or something like that. And thank God I avoided getting thrown into a Moscow prison. Now, what happened in that situation? A lot of assumptions were made. I assumed I was free to use the bathroom in a major airport. The old lady assumed that I knew that you were supposed to pay to use the bathroom. The police officers assumed that I understood that I had committed some sort of crime, and the lady who was translating understood that she assumed that like, I, I didn't speak Russian and don't, had no clue what was going on. 
You may have heard it said before, never assume anything. Don't make assumptions. You ever heard that before? There's even this old saying about the danger of assuming this and that, uh, but I won't repeat it since it's not entirely appropriate. But the idea is that it's foolish to make assumptions and that making assumptions can easily get you in trouble. Now, there's some truth in that idea that we need to be very careful about what assumptions we make. And if we make silly, unfounded assumptions, we can get ourselves in a lot of trouble. But there's a big problem with this idea, never assume anything. We actually can't do that. We can't avoid making assumptions. What do I mean by that? Well, every time you go to McDonald's, you assume that they have food for sale and that their food's not going to kill you, which may or may not be a good assumption. Every time you put the money, your money in the bank, you're assuming that this bank is going to keep your money reasonably safe. Every time you go to Walmart, you assume that the cashier there speaks English. Uh, you came here this morning assuming you'd hear a sermon. Well, of course, we need to be careful about what we assume and avoid silly, unfounded speculation and assumptions. Uh, you can't not make all sorts of assumptions all the time. In fact, we're making hundreds of, hundreds of assumptions every single day. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring this up because the verse we've come to here in 1 Thessalonians assumes an awful lot. I mean, the more I thought about this verse, the more I realized how much it assumes of its readers. I mean, take again a look at 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, this verse assumes you know what the Spirit is. And it's interesting, it doesn't even say the Holy Spirit, it just says the Spirit, assuming you know what it's talking about. Moreover, it assumes you know something about the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives, how it works, how he works, I should say. It assumes you know something about what quenching the Holy Spirit means and why we shouldn't do that and how we shouldn't do that. You see, this verse assumes all of that and a whole lot more. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The Bible's not doing anything wrong when it makes these assumptions. Now, the Bible never does anything wrong. Remember the context here. Paul had personally planted the church in Thessalonica. He had been with them in person to teach them, and he taught them an awful lot about the Holy Spirit. They knew enough about the Holy Spirit and his ministry so that when Paul said, do not quench the Holy Spirit, they already had the foundation in place for that to make sense. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with the Bible assuming these things about the Thessalonians. But the problem is, we're not the Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul has not been among us to teach us about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And for many of us, even if we've been Christians for decades, our understanding of the Holy Spirit is still rather minimal. What's more, in our day and age, there's an enormous amount of false teaching going around connected to the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's the whole charismatic movement, the whole Pentecostal movement. We've got these strange folks on TV late at night claiming they get visions from the Holy Spirit. So much confusion and false teaching here. So for the next few weeks... I'm going to try and do what I imagine Paul did when he was among the Thessalonian Christians. I'm going to be talking about the Holy Spirit and our relationship with him. We're going to talk about who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, how he works in our lives. And we're going to do that so that hopefully this command, do not quench the Holy Spirit, uh, will make sense. But to, get there, there, but to get there, we're going to have to lay a foundation. So today we're going to begin with this question, what and who is the Holy Spirit? What and who is the Holy Spirit? And realize again, the entire driving and motivation here is for you to cultivate your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Well, let me give you a first thing that we need to understand about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. Whatever else he is, whatever else he does, the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, let me make a couple of clarifications here so that you understand what I am and am not saying. 
When we say that the Holy Spirit's a person, we're distinguishing our view from that of some cults who look at the Holy Spirit as kind of like a force or something like that, almost like the personification of an idea. Uh, we talk this way in English from time to time. We talk about the spirit of America, or we talk about school spirit. And what are we doing there? We're just sort of personifying an idea. I mean, nobody really thinks school spirit's a person, do we? Realize many people think of the Holy Spirit that way. They don't think he's an actual person who does things, thinks things, says things, but it's just sort of the, an idea, like goodness or beauty or something like that. I realize that's not what we're saying about the Holy Spirit. Additionally, we're not saying that the Holy Spirit is a human. Now, this is where a lot of people get confused. They see person up there and they think human. That's not what we're saying at all. Humans are persons, but not all persons are humans. What do I mean by that? Well, classically understood, a person was a being with intellect, emotions, and will. Okay, if you've got intellect, emotions, and will, you're a person. What that means, angels are persons, but they're not humans. Demons are persons, but they're not humans. Of course, God the Father is a person, but he's not a human. Okay, so a being with intellect, emotions, and will is a person, and that's what we're saying about the Holy Spirit. Not that he's a human, he definitely doesn't have a body, but he is a human. Or pardon me, no, no, a person. Thinks things, does things, says things. You follow me so far? Now, where does the Bible teach that the Holy Spirit's a person? Well, essentially everywhere. We could begin with the way in which the Holy Spirit is frequently called the helper or the comforter. Have you come across this in your Bible reading? Often he's called the helper, the comforter. And that would be very odd if he were just the personification of some idea. For example, in John 14, 16, Jesus says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, you'll notice in that verse that the Holy Spirit is another helper. And it's another indicating that it's the second in the same category as the first. You know, if I say I'm going to give you another hamburger, that implies there's a first hamburger that's in the, second, in the same category as the second hamburger. Do you follow all of that? So also, if the Spirit is another helper, that means there's a first helper who in context is Jesus, and the Spirit's in the same category as Jesus. Now right here, we've got clear testimony from Jesus' own mouth, not only that the Spirit's a person, but that he's in the same category as Jesus. We'll talk more about that in a minute. In John 16, 7, we read this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit's also called the Helper, the Comforter, in John 14, 26 and John 15, 26. I'd encourage you to look those up. Again, we'd never talk this way about school spirit uh, or the spirit of 76 or something like that. Some of you who are older might remember that. Uh, no, those are, again, just the personification of ideas, but the Spirit is a Helper, a Comforter, because he's a person. Additionally, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit does things that only persons can do. You know that? The Holy Spirit does things that only persons can do. For, for example, the Holy Spirit prays. John 8, or pardon me, Mark 8, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I'd encourage you to think about this, that this week, that the Spirit prays for you. It's interesting, you may not have even thought that till this morning. But if you're a believer, if your hope is in the Lord Jesus, the Spirit has been praying for you for years. It's a fascinating ministry, but again, it indicates that he's a person, not just an idea. 
Just to list off several things that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit knows things, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. The Holy Spirit approves of things, Acts 15, 28. The Holy Spirit forbids certain things, Acts 16, 7. Additionally, he teaches, John 14, 26. He bears witness, Romans 8, 16. He gives gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. He convicts of sin, John 16, 8. He is grieved, Ephesians 4, 20, 4 30, pardon me. And as we see in the verse that we're studying in this series, he can be quenched. All of these activities indicate that he is a real person with intellect, emotions, and will. One last evidence that proves the Holy Spirit's a person. The Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets, apostles, and authors of the books of the Bible. And this is so huge. This is so huge, not just for our understanding of the Spirit, but our understanding of Scripture. The Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets, apostles, and authors of the Bible. And this comes up absolutely everywhere. 2 Samuel 23, 2. Then David said, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Ezekiel 11:5. The Spirit of the Lord fell on me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There are dozens of other verses to this effect. How can Moses and David and Peter and Paul and all the authors of the Bible write the words of God? It's because God's Spirit was working somehow in them, through them, so that they spoke only what the Spirit wanted them to say. Now, I think the fact that the Spirit speaks is probably the biggest, strongest evidence that he's a person. I mean, non-persons don't speak. You know, as much as you love your dog, and you know, I've got a dog that I've come to love, uh, as much as I love my dog, I can't really have a personal relationship with him because he doesn't speak. You know, he does rough, rough, and you know, that, that sort of thing. But that's, that's, we all know that that's not actually speaking. No, the idea of speaking implies personality. And so also, if the Spirit speaks, that indicates he's a person with whom we have a relationship. You follow that? Please, no offense to you dog lovers. That was not my, you know, again, I, I love our dog and I've grown to love him a lot, but let's, let's be honest here. You can't have a personal relationship with a being that can't speak. So this is the first truth I want you to get about the spirit. He is a person. He's not a force. He's not an idea. He's not the personification of something else. No, he's a living, active person uh, with whom we should have a relationship. Let me give you a second truth about the Holy Spirit. Consider with me second how the Holy Spirit is a divine person. Not only is he a person, but he is a divine person, meaning he's fully God, equal with God the Father, equal with God the Son. Now, there are many ways that we could go about proving this, but maybe the simplest way is to begin with those passages that put the Spirit in the same category as the Father and the Son. These are what are called Trinitarian passages. Trinitarian passages where you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in the same category. And there are a lot of these. Matthew 28, 19, the famous Great Commission passage. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name singular. And then it lists the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I find that passage so, so fascinating because it doesn't say the names, plural, but the name, singular. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, the name of God is like a really huge deal. Uh, God does everything he does for the sake of his name. But what is that name? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13.4, or pardon me, 13.14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 1 Peter 1.2. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
I could give you many, many more examples of this. The Holy Spirit's frequently mentioned in these Trinitarian passages right next to the Father, right next to the Son. And again, that would be totally inappropriate to do if you weren't divine, if you weren't Almighty God like the Father and the Son are. I mean, you could think about it this way. This is going to sound blasphemous, and it actually is, but, but I'm trying to make a point here. Imagine I said to you, Church, Trinity Baptist, I want you to be fully devoted to God the Father, to God the Son, and to Elvis Presley or to Taylor Swift, or to LeBron James. You'd be like, what in the world is wrong with you? You don't put anything in the same category as God unless it's God. So also, the Bible does that with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it does that because the Spirit's in the same category as Father and Son. You see? Additionally, throughout the Bible, the Spirit has abilities, he has characteristics, he does things that only God can do. You know, there are certain things that only God can do them, and if you can prove that you can do them, you therefore prove you're God. You know, for instance, there can be only one infinitely powerful being. You know, just think about it for a second. Could there be multiple infinitely powerful beings? No, it doesn't work that way. You got one. So also, if I can prove that I've got infinite power, I prove that I'm God. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, what we're seeing is that he does things that only God can do, proving that he is God. So, for example, the Holy Spirit is everywhere all the time. Uh, to those of us who believe, that's a comfort. To those of us who don't, that ought to scare you. This is the big word. Uh, the big word for this is omnipresence, everywhere, all the time. Psalm 139.7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You go to California. As counterintuitive as it might sound, the Holy Spirit is there. You get in a submarine and go to the bottom of the ocean. The Holy Spirit's already there. You get arrested and thrown in some prison in Moscow. The Holy Spirit is there. You get in a spaceship and fly to the moon. The Holy Spirit's already there. And, and realize this. I can't do that. We, we can't be omnipresent. Angels can't be omnipresent. Demons can't be omnipresent. The devil's not omnipresent, but the Spirit is, and the Spirit can do that because he's God. More than that, the Holy Spirit also has an exhaustive knowledge of absolutely everything. And think about that. As much as you know, we all appreciate the internet and stand in awe of how much information is on the internet, the Holy Spirit's got the internet like times infinity in his mind, which blows my mind. He knows absolutely everything, past, present, future, big stuff, small stuff, all things actual and possible in the mind of the Holy Spirit. The big word for this is omniscience. He knows everything. Think about 1 Corinthians 2.10. These things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, now think through the reasoning here. You've got Almighty God, and Almighty God's got infinite knowledge. I mean, nobody really argues with that. Almighty God knows absolutely everything. This passage says the Spirit knows the mind of Almighty God. Now, if God's mind is infinite, and if the Spirit knows that infinite mind, that indicates that the Spirit also is God, because only an infinite being can know infinite stuff. You follow that? We could keep going on with several other attributes of God, things that only God can do. And by proving that the Spirit does these and can do these, it proves that he's God, that he's a divine person. Now, at this point, I want to make a very important clarification, and this is where I want you to put your thinking cap on, which hopefully you've had it on the entire time, but in the event that it's lying on the floor, pick it up and put it on now. Yes, the Holy Spirit's a divine person, fully God, almighty God, but realize he is distinct from God the Father and God the Son. 
When we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about one God in whom are three persons. That language is so important. One God in whom are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, etc. One God in whom are three persons. Is that mysterious? Absolutely. Uh, but welcome to Christianity. That's what we've been saying since the very beginning. Oftentimes our illustrations of the Trinity get this totally wrong. Uh, maybe don't raise your hand, but have you ever heard the Trinity illustrated like water? Water can exist in three forms. You've got liquid, you've got ice, and you've got vapor. That's the Trinity. Brothers and sisters, realize that's a great illustration of the heresy of modalism. It's a terrible illustration of the Trinity. It's, a, it's like the anti-truth of the Trinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet they're not three forms of the same being. They're three persons, but together they're the one God. Again, is it mysterious? Yes, but we can't say other than what the Bible teaches. I think the clearest way to see this is in the passage where Jesus is baptized. Chris read this earlier, but read this passage again and see how they're distinct persons. Let me read the relevant verses. Matthew 3.16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now think through that passage. Do you see the three distinct persons? There's the Father, and what's he doing? He's speaking. There's the Son, he's being baptized, and there's the Spirit coming down in the, like, like a dove. Three distinct persons, uh, but again, if we rely on the rest of Scripture, they're, they're one God. And this is why we've got all these passages in Scripture talking about how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to one another, uh, indicating that they're different persons. So, for instance, the Spirit is sent by the Father. John 14, 26, Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Look, we mentioned earlier, the Spirit prays. Romans 8, 27, He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. If the Spirit's praying, to whom is the Spirit praying? He's praying to the Father. And one more, did you know that the Father employed the Spirit to resurrect Jesus the Son? Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. All of these passages and more make it clear that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. He's fully God. But don't get confused. That does not simply mean he's a different form of God or it's Jesus with a different hat on. Not at all. Again, one God in whom are three persons, and these three persons play distinct but harmonious roles in the work of salvation. Let me give you one final passage demonstrating that the Holy Spirit's a divine person. Listen to Acts 5.3 and following, and notice through way of parallelism what this passage says about the Spirit. Try and pick this up. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why have you conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Look it up on your own, but through parallelism, in one sentence, they've lied to the Holy Spirit. A couple sentences later, they've lied to God, indicating that God is the Holy Spirit. He is Almighty God, fully equal with the Father, fully equal with the Son. Now, we're going to talk about the implications of this more in future sermons, but let me just give you one application of this for now. What is, uh, what's one application of the fact that the Spirit's fully God? Well, here's what it means. Never hesitate to offer worship to the Holy Spirit. 
We should never hesitate to offer worship to the Holy Spirit, to honor him, to sing praises to him, to sing about him, to trust in him, to worship him. That's totally appropriate since he's God. You know, what's the definition of blasphemy? The definition of blasphemy is not worship, or, well, actually it's two-sided. It's worshiping something that's not God. You know, if you worship me, that's blasphemy. Additionally, to fail to give God the worship he's due is a form of blasphemy. So if the Spirit is God, he is due the worship God deserves. To give you an example of this, consider the words of Martin Luther's old hymn, To God the Holy Spirit, Let Us Pray. I thought that this was a good, good illustration of what it might look like to worship the Spirit. But Luther wrote, To God the Holy Spirit, let us pray, for true faith needed on our way, that he may defend us when life is ending, and from exile home we are wending. Shine in our hearts, O Spirit, precious light, teach us, Jesus Christ, to know aright, that we may abide in the Lord who bought us, till our true home he has brought us. We can and should worship the Holy Spirit since he is a divine person. He's God Almighty. Let me give you one final truth about the Spirit this morning. Consider lastly how the Holy Spirit is a divine person with whom you can and should have a relationship. The Holy Spirit is a divine person with whom you can and should have a relationship. Now, you may have considered this already, but did you notice how many of the things that we said the Spirit does, he does in the lives of humans? Uh, they're sort of personal, relational things. Of course he's doing other things. He's restraining evil, and he, there's a whole lot that the Spirit's doing, but a huge part of his ministry is working in the lives of humans. Let me just remind you of a few of the things that we learned. We said he convicts of sin, that he opens eyes and hearts, that he causes people to be born again, that he bears fruit in people's lives. He bears witness, he gives gifts, he comforts, leads, guides, is grieved, can be quenched, and he preserves. All that and so much more the Holy Spirit does in humans' lives, and not just back in Bible times, but he does them today as well. And here's how I would encourage you to look at these. As we walk through some of these ministries of the Spirit in future sermons, look at these as basically invitations. They're invitations to you of the type of relationship you can have with the Spirit. The Spirit can convict you. The Spirit can work in your heart. He can bear witness in your life. He can bear fruit. He can do all of these and a hundred other things. And again, look at them as invitations to the kind of relationship I can have with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a very important clarification I want to make at this point. Never believe that the Holy Spirit is limited in what he can do by your understanding. A lot of people go wrong here. They think, okay, if I don't understand something, the Holy Spirit can't do it. That, that's, not, that, that's like the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Never think that the Holy Spirit is limited in what he can do in your life by your understanding. In the vast majority of the cases, the Spirit is at work, and people don't realize it. He's convicting, he's drawing, he's illuminating. I think for a lot of us, this was our salvation testimony. We just kind of like woke up one day and went like, wow, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Not realizing, and maybe it wasn't until later in our lives that we came to the realization that the Spirit had been at work for a long time drawing us, opening our eyes like this. I have a spleen. I think most of us probably have spleens here. Um, I have a spleen, and to be totally honest, I have no idea what the spleen does. Uh, I was probably taught what a spleen does many, many moons ago back in high school biology, but that was you know, a long time ago, and I've totally forgot what the spleen is and does and that sort of thing. But here's the thing. My spleen is not limited because of my lack of understanding. You know, for 45 years here, my spleen has been doing whatever spleens do, even though I've been blissfully ignorant of what spleens do. And I'm sure some of you will explain afterwards exactly what spleens will do. Um, 
and, and I appreciate that. But anyway, realize that in some ways, that's how the Holy Spirit works. He's not limited by our lack of understanding. He's still going to be very active at work, changing, saving, transforming, even if we have no clue that he's there at work. Well, that might prompt you to ask the question, why then should I learn about the Holy Spirit if he's going to be working anyway, even if I don't understand it? Let me give you two reasons. First, we should learn about the Holy Spirit's ministries because that fuels worship. Learn about the Holy Spirit's ministries because that fuels worship. I mean, once you discover all that the Holy Spirit's doing, that prompts you to just stand in awe. Oh, my goodness, God is so good. God is so gracious to give me all of these things. I had no idea he was even doing these things. And again, that idea of him praying for us. You may have never heard of that till this morning. But now all of a sudden you've got reason to thank God. God, thank you that the Spirit's been praying for me my entire Christian life, even though I wasn't even aware of it. So learn about the Holy Spirit's ministries that will fuel worship. Let me give you a second reason why we should learn about the Spirit's ministries. There are certain ministries that believers are called to play a cooperating role in. Okay, I gotta be, it's kind of a fine nuance thing here, but there are certain ministries that the Spirit does, whether we know it or not, participate or not, He just does them. Others were called to play a participating role. Now, I'll admit that I'm not even sure that this is the best way to word this, um, but there are ministries, and I'm going to give you examples of these, where we're commanded to do something in response to the Spirit. And if you've got a better way to word this, uh, again, I'll take suggestions at the door. But let me give you a couple examples. In Galatians 5.16, we read this, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, in that verse, there's the Spirit's work. He's going to prevent us from fulfilling the desires of the flesh, but we've got to figure out some way to walk in the Spirit. So there's our role and the Spirit's role. Ephesians 4.30, another example. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. Now, that verse is fascinating because you've got kind of a taste of both. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit the day we believed. Realize that the nanosecond you trusted in Jesus, you were sealed. And again, you may have never even heard of the concept of sealing by the Spirit. That's okay. It took place when you believed. And yet, we're still to figure out some way that we don't grieve the Spirit. So you were sealed. Now you live in such a way as to not bring pain to the Spirit. One more example is the verse that's the inspiration for this entire series, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Spirit. We're to play a participating role in that, to figure out what that means, and, and to avoid quenching the Spirit. And again, hopefully by the end of the series, you'll know what that means. In all of these ministries and more, we are called upon to, I guess, cooperate, fall in line, follow the Spirit's leading. Again, I don't really know the perfect wording right now, but I hope you're getting what I'm trying to say. And the more you can figure out your role and fall in line with the work of the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, the richer, more fruitful, more joyful your Christian life will be. So as we begin this little mini-series on the Spirit, and I'm not sure yet how long it's going to be, everything always seems to go longer than I anticipate, but commit right now that you're going to pursue a relationship with the Holy Spirit, whatever that looks like. Right now, commit to that. Whatever that involves, whatever that might require, I'm going to go for it. It might require you to learn a little bit. It might require you to repent quite a bit, change some habits, change some ways of thinking. Uh, maybe you've picked up some false teaching along the way and you didn't know about it. You might need to shed that. But I'm ready. I believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. I believe he's a divine person, and I believe he's a divine person with whom I can and should have a relationship. So I'm committing right now that I'm going to pursue that. Would you make that commitment? Now again, in future sermons, we're going to tease this out in detail so that hopefully by the end of it, you'll understand better what it means to relate to the Holy Spirit. 
But for now, let me give you two specifics, two specific ways for engaging with the Holy Spirit, relating to him. First, realize that the Holy Spirit speaks to us today through Scripture. The Holy Spirit speaks to us today through Scripture, through the Bible. Now take a look up here at Hebrews 3.7. It's a fascinating passage. In Hebrews 3.7, we read this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now pause there. A couple things I want you to notice. First, see that phrase, as the Holy Spirit says? And then if you look at the indented section, he then starts quoting Psalm 95, which is what we read as our call to worship. Here's the fascinating thing. You go back to Psalm 95, and it never says the Holy Spirit is saying this. We actually don't know who wrote Psalm 95. It's not like a Psalm of David, like a lot of the Psalms are. We have no idea who wrote this. But the fact that it's in Scripture, part of the Bible, indicates that it's God the Holy Spirit speaking. Never limit the Holy Spirit speaking to those passages that are just, like just, thus says the Lord, or the Holy Spirit says. Of course he's speaking in those, but he's actually speaking in every word of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it's inspired by God. And whenever Scripture speaks, that's the Holy Spirit speaking. Another thing I want you to notice about this passage up on the wall, notice the present tense says there in verse 7. It doesn't say as the Holy Spirit said, past tense, but what? Says, present tense. And interestingly, this is not the only place in Scripture where this happens. There are many instances of this. If you want to check this out, you might look up John 19, 24, Romans 10, 11, 1 Timothy 5, 18, James 4, 5, among many others, and I can give you more later. God not only spoke back then, like 2,000 years ago when Scripture was written, but Scripture today is God speaking. And notice one last thing about these verses. It says, today, if you hear his voice. Now, this is where it really gets fascinating. Remember, it's author of Hebrews quoting Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was written, you, you know, roughly when Psalm 95 was written? Around 1,000 B.C., Hebrews is written around 65 A.D. What is the today referring to? Is the today referring to 1000 B.C. or 65 A.D.? Or is it referring to both? And today? Answer is C, and today. As the scripture is properly understood, properly applied, properly interpreted, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to us today. You see what I'm saying? Now, obviously, this includes proper principles of Bible interpretation. I mean, we don't just flip open the Bible and point a finger and say, okay, this applies to me today. No, no, we interpret it in context. We think, who is this speaking to? What is it? We obviously, we use careful principles of Bible interpretation. But once you've done that, that's God speaking to you today. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You follow that? Many people desire an experience with the Holy Spirit today. And what they're imagining is kind of fantastic stuff. Passing out on the floor, dreams and visions, signs and wonders. Now, can the Holy Spirit do that? Of course. He did it in the Bible. But frankly, I see no reason to expect him to continue to do that today. But what I can tell you for certain is that the Spirit does speak through the Bible. So if you want to experience the Holy Spirit, here's what you do. Pray, Lord, open my eyes. Pray, Spirit, convict me of sin. Give me life according to your word. And then get your Bible open. Read with careful principles of Bible interpretation. You know, just... Reading it in context, what is this actually saying? Pray back in response to what you've read. That's an experience with the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a second way of engaging with the Spirit. And it's with this that we'll close. But realize that your relationship with the Spirit begins with believing the gospel. Your relationship with the Spirit begins with believing the gospel. 
Now, just for the sake of clarification, notice I don't say the work of the Holy Spirit in your life begins when you believe the gospel. No, there's actually a whole lot, like I alluded to earlier, that the Holy Spirit's doing to bring you to faith, to open your eyes, to open your heart. And all of that is a work of the Spirit that we should praise Him for. And yet, for most of us, again, we were very unaware that that was even happening. So the beginning of your sort of intelligent, cognizant relationship with the Spirit begins when you put your hope in Jesus. You follow? Listen to Romans 8, 9 and following. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now there is an enormous amount in that passage that I hope to one day study with you. But for now, what I want you to get is this. The nanosecond you trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in your life. The, like, like the, it could have been when you were like four years old, but the nanosecond you turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, you became the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit began dwelling there, working in your life, slowly transforming you, slowly bearing fruit. And again, that was going on, even though you may have never even heard of it. Realize that happens to everybody the nanosecond they turn from sin and embrace the Lord Jesus as their Savior. The Bible tells us that you were made to know God. Why are you here? Why are you on this planet? Why do you have life to know God and to have a relationship with Him? This is how we're different from animals. We're to know God as a heavenly Father. But the reality of the matter is we've sinned and rejected God. We've rebelled against Him. We've tried to live the life we've wanted to live regardless to how God has designed it to be lived. We break his laws, frankly, all the time. And so long as we don't get caught, we don't really feel... By nature, I know that's me by nature. Now, because God is righteous and holy, he will punish us for our sins. He will pour out his wrath on us for our sins. Somewhat in this life, but far, far more in the life to come. And unless we have a Savior, unless we are forgiven of our sins, unless we are reconciled to our Creator, we will suffer the wrath of God forever in that real place called hell. And yet under those very circumstances, God loved us. He loved rebels, loved sinners, and did something to show that love. He sent his own Son down from heaven. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, he takes on flesh and blood, born as a little baby. He grows up and lives a life of perfect trust in and obedience to his heavenly Father. He never sins like we do. He has this relatively brief ministry of teaching, casting out demons, performing miracles, confronting hypocrisy, showing compassion on the oppressed. But then he dies on the cross. And why does he die on the cross? He dies as a substitutionary atonement. Big word. What's that mean? He dies to bear our punishment in our place. All the wrath of God, the curse of God I deserve for my rebellion, Jesus absorbs it in my place on the cross. Three days later, God raises Jesus back from the dead to demonstrate that everything he taught about himself is true. And now here's the invitation. Turn from sin, embrace the Lord Jesus, be reconciled to God. Stop running from God, stop marching to the, your own drummer, rely on Jesus' death and resurrection, enter back into that relationship with God, your heavenly Father, you were created for. And not only that, be given the Holy Spirit who begins transforming you and bearing fruit in your life. That's the invitation that's offered to you this morning, if you'll but trust in Jesus. This is why God sent his Son down from heaven. This is why Jesus took on flesh and blood, to reconcile us to God and to give us the Holy Spirit. 
And for those of us who have been saved, who have turned to Jesus, we're now permanently indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And that's another truth I hope to get to tell you about. We're indwelt permanently. So from the day we believe all the way till we get to heaven, the Spirit's going to preserve us. Simply one of the thousands of benefits Jesus purchased for all of his believing people. So in conclusion, I beg you to trust Jesus now. Trust him right now. If you've never committed yourself body and soul to the Lord Jesus, do it right now. Right where you are, turn from your sins. Embrace his loving leadership. Put your hope in him as the only savior for your soul. Do that and be reconciled to God. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, you need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you or pray for you, please talk to me at the door after the service. I'll be there to greet people on the way out. But trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior today, and today begin your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your generosity. Your generosity in giving us your Holy Spirit. Lord, we, don't deserve, we deserve eternal hell. And to think that not only for those of us who believe we aren't sent to hell, but we're forgiven, we're justified, we're clothed in Jesus' righteousness, we're given everything that we need for life and godliness, we're given the sure and certain hope of heaven, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, joy in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, such incredible gifts, and we thank you also for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, such a blessing. Help us to treasure him, to come to understand his work better, uh, to keep in step with the Spirit. Lord, we do pray your blessing on this series here. Please give us illumination that we might understand all that the scriptures teach and gladly submit to it. And we do pray that we all would cultivate our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And for those today who have not yet put their hope in the Lord Jesus, work in their lives now. Draw them now by your Spirit that they might trust in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.